my friends, and welcome to the Two Trees podcast. Today, we are really excited because we have a special guest with us. Uh, Dr. Carmen Imes is joining us all the way from somewhere in the future, out in California, I think, is where you're at. And uh, so we're getting to talk with her, but I'm here with my friend Rosemary. Hi, guys. And Pastor Jonah. Hello, hello. And so it's me, John Dillon, and we are here and really excited because... Uh, Dr. Imes has written two really stellar books about the idea of the image of God and also about the concept of the Old Testament and the, uh, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, both of which you may think, oh, I already understand all that. I promise you there are so many fun rabbit holes and exciting topics to think about and to chew on that these books are going to be a tremendous blessing to you and a worthy addition to your library. So, Dr. Imes, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's great to hear from you, my friend. Uh, first of all, I know we're just going to kind of jump right into this. We have a lot of churches in America and here in the West, and they all seem to have like super passionate opinions about how to do everything. And one of the things that comes up that I run into a lot, especially with other pastors, is it's difficult to get them interested in the Old Testament. They seem to mm-hmm. almost be allergic to the Old Testament. And I'll hear things like, you know, we're a New Testament church, you know, why should we be focusing our time trying to unpack this uh, this ancient part of Scripture? Wouldn't we be better served mm-hmm. just digging into the Gospels and, and Paul exclusively? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was curious because you seem to have taken the opposite track uh, in your thinking and your teaching. Uh, but what would you say to the church as a whole? Why do we need to be looking at both of the Testaments? Well, this is going to maybe sound radical, but I would argue that if we as Christians want to know who we are, our core identity, and our vocation in the world, what we're here to do, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to go to Sinai to find out what it means to be part of the people of God. We have to go back to Genesis to find out what it means to be human. So I would argue that with the New Testament by itself, we actually can't fully understand who we are or why we're here. Mm. How has digging into the Old Testament, because I mean, obviously you're interested in it, but has it brought healing or focus to your ministry, mm. to, to what's going on? Like, what, what would you say is then the purpose of mankind? Because you've written a book and it talks about, this is your new one, that, that deals with the idea of uh, the image of God. And Jonah had a question for you uh, about the, the image. You want to go ahead and drop mm-hmm. that one here? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Arms. And I didn't want to also say, really appreciated uh, being God's image. It's, uh, and I've actually had a fun time last uh, couple weeks. I've, I've actually never uh, engaged as so much of your teaching uh, or read your books. Mm-hmm. And I, I love, so I'm a, I'm a pastor of a, <laughs> of a, a local church here. And I love finding authors that kind of hit this happy medium who engage mm-hmm. biblical scholarship well, but are also writing not on a top shelf, but low shelf for the average person in the pew. Uh, I feel like I like mm-hmm. that because it just kind of helps me to understand in the first place, but then it also uh, sure. shapes me to have that same type yeah, of... Uh, for sure. 
like relatability. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, rather than mm-hmm. sometimes getting, being too abstract. But yeah, really appreciate that. Yep. Uh, and you helped me to uh, understand um, what it means to be. Uh, I'm already all, almost saying in the image of God, <laughs> what it means to be uh, the <laughs> the image of God. Uh, so I have a two. Yes. Uh, so I have a two part question. Uh, the first question is: Can you just uh, share with us how you interpret Genesis one twenty eight, image of God? And then second, could you speak mm-hmm. to uh, the distinguish the, I guess, the traditional view of being made in the image of God as image bearers? That was like my only lingo. Uh, John gently corrected mm-hmm. me before this uh, interview a couple weeks ago, uh, and I stand corrected after reading the book. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> so first question. How do you interpret the image? And then could you distinguish it between being Mm -hmm. made in the image uh, versus being made as the image? Sure. Yeah, these are great questions. First of all, I'm so glad that you have felt that the book was accessible because that is the goal to speak in a language that anyone can understand. Mm -hmm. I really want everybody from teenagers on up to be able to engage scripture and learn from it. And so Mm -hmm. I try to practice a style of communication that eliminates the lingo that people mm-hmm. aren't going to know or, um, yeah, just puts the cookies mm-hmm. on the bottom shelf. And, I think that's, and one, that's the goal. And one quick thing to add to our listeners, uh, I, I actually, I, I listened to it and I love audiobooks where the author mm. reads it. And so it was a very accessible audiobook, especially because you were the reader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the content isn't, it, it's, it's not un it's really heavy stuff, but it's right. presented in a mm-hmm. really clever and down-to-earth way. And as a pastor, mm-hmm. uh, part of what we try to do is you try to take stuff that's over your head already and communicate that to people. And so I feel like you did the legwork for me, mm-hmm. and, and that mm-hmm. was a huge help to just be like, oh, all <laughs> yes. right. Yeah. Not only do I now understand this better, but she also showed me a great way to talk about this. Yes. So so thank you oh, for... Oh, sweet. I'm so glad. Yeah, writing that way. Now, tell me why I'm wrong that... Uh, uh, oh, I, I made in, in God's image. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, so it has been the predominant way of talking about the image of God through the centuries to say that we're made in the image of God and to attach that or to understand that as a particular capacity mm-hmm. that we have as humans that animals don't have. And so you're in very good company if you're talking mm-hmm. about bearing God's image or being made in God's image. And if you think that that means we're more rational than animals, or we're, we have a sense of moral responsibility that animals do not, or we're more relational than animals. There's lots of ways that people have talked about the image of God that attach it to human capacity. But as I go back to Scripture and I carefully read the passage mm-hmm. in question, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, I be, I've become convinced that the capacity interpretation is misguided. Yes, humans have capacities that animals do not, including rationality, relationality, morality, and all these things. However, I don't believe that scripture presents those things as the content of what it means to be the image of God. So, I argue that based on the ancient Near Eastern context in which this was given, that the word image, which is in Hebrew the word selim, is something actually concrete. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, Atselam was a statue or idol of a god that would that would represent that deity. And I believe in a similar way, when God makes humans, he makes us as his physical representatives on earth. Mm-hmm. We are the image of God. That is, we are his physical representatives so that we can rule over creation on his behalf. Mm-hmm. So our identity is the image of God. The consequence of that identity is our position as rulers over creation. Mm-hmm. And again, it's true that we, on on average, are more rational than the animals, Although there are exceptions, right? If someone with profound disabilities or a significant injury, somebody in a coma, uh, somebody might not have rational capacities mm. that that rival or exceed the animals. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason why I think it's important to decouple this conversation about the image of God from human capacity. Because we have a wide range of abilities, and those abilities come and go over the course of our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so there's not like a particular benchmark that we have to meet in order to achieve human dignity or worth. Just by having a human body, we are the image of God. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we are people of dignity and worth who have been appointed by God to rule over creation. So grammatically, we can make that case um, mm-hmm. that that the what's been traditionally translated in the image could instead be rendered as the image that is, let us make humankind as our image. So we're not, sometimes people talk about the image as if it's a sort of pattern. We're, we're patterned after the image. No, we are the image. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to argue in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you do a great job of it in the book. I especially like the connections then back to the Garden of Eden and having read John Walton's stuff and thinking of the garden as uh, as a temple space, as a place where heaven and mm-hmm. earth overlapped, <laughs> and then you there's no there's no yeah. idol in the temple. There yeah. there is literally right. instead right. Uh, uh, an agent whose job is to represent uh, the Lord to these mm-hmm. animals, and the uh, the job that's given there is to have dominion. It's it's mm-hmm. not just to sit there mm-hmm. and like look <laughs> important, mm-hmm. uh, but it's to right. to actually be right. something. And, and I found this, like, if you're just sitting there thinking, like, that sounds really academic, man, that's incredibly practical. Because you'll get people who will mm-hmm. then say things like, oh, well, what about this person who's smarter or faster? Are they more in God's image? Mm-hmm. Or this person who mm-hmm. is speaks this language or is this tall uh, is somebody. Like, and, and so you begin wondering, well, are there people who are more in God's image and others who are less? Right. What about a child in the womb? Uh, they're not doing a whole mm-hmm. lot. Even now, I have a two-month-old, and he doesn't do a whole lot other than just need. Not things. so rational. Yeah, uh, not, not so yeah. rational. <laughs> I keep trying to have like good conversations with yeah. him, and he's just not interested Listen, at all. Listen, his skill set right now is to be adorable, and he <laughs> is crushing it. He is yeah. the image of of the Lord. He is, <laughs> and one day he will he will accomplish it. But I just I felt this immense sense of relief and purpose when I started thinking that way, Mm. that there wasn't Mm. this uh, vague idea out there that I was supposed to just figure out and and that I was Mm. trying to press towards. And it also makes a tremendous amount of sense when I started thinking about the fact that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that Mm -hmm. in ancient culture, Mm -hmm. that, that was what they thought was happening with a statue or with an idol, that their God was there. 
Uh, could you talk about that for just a moment? Why is that important? Am I making stuff sure. up or does this sound at all remotely right? Yeah, th- I think you're on uh, right spot on here. So when when an ancient artisan crafted an image of a deity, part of the ceremony of installing that image to be an official idol involved breathing into its mouth. They, they had uh, this... Uh, ceremony called the opening of the mouth ritual. The the crafting of the statue would happen in a garden. It would happen by a river. Mm. Then it would be brought to the temple. It would be clothed. It would be breathed in. And although it was still obvious to everyone else that it was made of stone or wood or whatever, metal, uh, they believed it to be animated by the spirit of the deity that it represented. How cool is it that God says he makes Adam in a garden and, and Eve and breathes into them yeah. the breath of life and animates them. And then they're actually a living being yeah. rather than just, okay, we're all going to pretend now that this thing is alive. See, and that's a cool word, like that idea of like we've been mankind in our fallen sinful self is pretending. The powers of darkness in what they're, they're counterfeit <laughs> and offering up is nothing more than a pretense yeah. of what God has done yeah. in, in real life, that almost that C.S. Yeah. Lewis idea of true myth uh, comes comes into mm-hmm. play. Uh, and so we've had a lot yeah. of com- fun conversations about your content here. Uh, Rose, you had some questions. Are, you're not going to be shy about this. No, 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 not at all. No, okay. I'm not going to be shy, but I've, now I'm intrigued about something else. I was it's thinking, too late. That ship nope. has sailed. You must <laughs> talk about something else. No, I was actually thinking while she was talking about how... Um, it's sort of sad that the Lord did such a marvelous thing. He took something as humble as dirt and formed us from it and breathed, mm. breathed mm. his life into us. And then the only thing that, as it gets watered down through the um, centuries or millennium or whatever, that that's all they could come up with was sort of a shadow or a copy of what was really mm. true. Mm. It's like a reversal of yeah. what we experience now. Mm. Um, but that's not what I was yeah, going to, yeah, I was just, yeah, I was just going to, I was actually going to talk to you about, um, I read your book bearing, not his image, his name. And yes, I loved your idea of liminal space. That was something I had never mm. heard of before. I don't know where I've been. I've lived in liminal space. We probably all have, but I was hoping you could talk some about that. We have. Absolutely. So, so you read what is my first book with University Press, which is Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Thank you. I can't and remember it the exact is name. <laughs> a, yep, that's fine. Mm-hmm. It is a book in which I tried to take all the riches of what I learned writing my dissertation uh, to get my doctorate on the concept of the people of God representing him among the nations. So God's covenant people bear his name. So I was trying to take that concept and communicate it to the church at large. And part of what I do is try to resituate the Old Testament law in its appropriate place, because we don't tend to have a high view of the law. We tend to think of, Christians tend to think of Old Testament law as a ball and chain. Those poor Israelites, they had all these laws they had to obey. They were trying to earn their salvation, but praise God, we don't have to do that anymore Mm -hmm. because we have Jesus. So one of the things I'm trying to correct there is this misunderstanding of what the law was for. The law was given at Sinai to a people who had already been redeemed. God already saved them 
and then gave them the law. And the law was not their means of salvation. It was a matter of mission. So they get to participate in God's work of redeeming the world by showing the nations what he is like. But they've been enslaved in Egypt for generations. And so it takes some time to transform these people so that they can reflect God's character, so that they can be a different kind of society. God does not want them to be just another Egypt. He doesn't take them out of Egypt and say, okay, Pharaoh's not your ruler anymore, but but now you go do go vow and do likewise. He doesn't want them to to mimic the kind of oppression that they experienced in Egypt and just turn around and do that to others. So he so he brings them not on the shortcut to Canaan, but through the wilderness where they're wandering around for for genera- for a whole generation. And that place becomes the workshop of God's own workshop where he remakes them to be more like him. And so the the word that sociologists use or cultural anthropologists use to describe an in-between space where somebody is going through a personal transformation is a liminal space. And you are not alone in having not heard that word before. Uh, It's not a word that normal people walk around using. And when I wrote that book, I took out all the words my 17-year-old daughter didn't know, but we kept that one and I tried to define it because I felt like the concept was so helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the word liminal comes from the Latin word lemon. I don't know Latin just for the record, but this is what they tell me, that a lemon is the, is the threshold or doorway of a building. And so if you're standing right in the doorway, you're standing on the lemon, you're in liminal space. You're not in the building and you're not out of the building. And so, so anthropologists use the term liminal to talk about transitional space. So if somebody goes through a rite of passage, say there's a culture where uh, a boy who hits puberty is sent off into the woods to survive for two weeks and has to somehow prove his manhood. And then he comes back. He went out as a boy. He comes back as a man. We hope. That's liminal space. That. That time that he spends in the woods is liminal space. Is that how it was for you, Jonah? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it was a rough time. You killed the bear. Yes. And you came back. Very manly. I gained yeah. 15 pounds of muscle. It was great. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Rose, so what? we have these oh, rituals. We, we have these rituals across the world that, that help somebody transition from one identity or one state to another. And I just think it's beautiful that God institutes or he uses liminal space as he transforms the Israelites to become a new kind of community. And so the wilderness is not just a delay. It's not like, um, oh, man, things weren't ready yet. It's that they weren't ready yet. They needed to be transformed. So the, the wilderness was not a waste of time. It was the workshop of their becoming God's people. I think that's why I loved that so much when I was when I, I was listening to it, and I kept wishing I had a paper copy so I could start taking notes on it. So I'm planning on doing that, but I love <laughs> that because my nature is to finish this one thing and move on to the next one. No wasted time, you know. Like we're just we have a goal. Yes. Let's get her done. The faster we are all on board, yes. usually my board, the faster we can all move forward together and really get some things accomplished. And so I've always looked at the wilderness as the world's longest road trip detour time waster. And 
<laughs> I am learning to look at it differently. And your use of that word in your mm. book just really has really changed the way I looked at, at Exodus. So thank you for mm. that. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. And I thought it was interesting reading Exodus, and I didn't notice it until after I had read your book. Uh, but even from the very beginning, before they've uh, rejected him and worshipped the golden cow and all that stuff, God doesn't take them up the, the road of the sea through the land of the Philistines. He mm-hmm. says, listen, uh, that's not the way we're going to go. We're going to go off-roading. Uh, and, and you really would look mm-hmm. at that as, you know, man, this is, these are terrible directions. Like, where, where are we going? And that concept of your place right now is where God is using you. Not, not where he's just going to use you mm. one day, but that you have mm. purpose mm. right now. Yeah. And, and I know that you see that in Jesus and, and in the apostles, and it's not unique to the New Testament. It's, it's fulfilled and enriched mm-hmm. when you have the background that they also had, that by knowing these stories, yeah. you're engaging in this larger conversation that I don't think takes away from the New Testament's importance at all. I think it gives it the punch no. and, and the, the full it context does. of really getting uh, the gist of the conversation. And how many times do the apostles quote, like straight out of the Old Testament, or they'll, they'll use stories and images, and I just, I'm calling out so to my brothers and sisters out there, you know, hey, don't be hating on the Old Testament. This is not a waste of your time. Yeah. It may take effort, for you to to jump some of these uh, these cultural hurdles that are there, but there are great tools at our fingertips that we mm-hmm. can get hold of and get help. I mean, if I was able to get Carmen Imes on the phone, then <laughs> anything is possible, <laughs> you know. And uh, Rose, if only you were at a library or something where you could get just about I any know, book really. that you wanted. Yeah, like there has imagine. never been a time where it was more available right. for people. Mm-hmm to do this kind of study and to, to yeah. be in community. Even just, even just 25 years ago, there, was, there were not as many accessible resources that made solid scholarship available to the church. And there is now no excuse. There's so much out there. There's, you've got the Bible Project, which is all available for free, that helps crack the literary design of the Old Testament. You've got resources like the Cultural Background Study Bible that Zondervan puts out that is just an incredible source because it helps you see how the ancient culture um, can help us understand what's going on in the text. And John, you mentioned the, the route through the wilderness not being the short one. Not only does God take them through the wilderness so he can whip them into shape, but it's it shows us the incredible mercy of God that he doesn't take them on the way of the Philistines mm-hmm. because that road, the shortcut to Canaan, we now we now know was punctuated by Egyptian military fortifications. If the people had gone that way, they would have been fighting the Egyptians every few miles all the way to Canaan. Mm-hmm. It would have been a terrifying journey because they would have continue to encounter Egyptian soldiers. Instead, God takes them through the desert where they're not going to encounter any more Egyptians. And he he wants to show them that he is their new leader. And rather than exploit their labor the way Pharaoh did, 
God brings them through the wilderness and supplies what they need. He shows them his his mercy as a provider. Mm. And you see that if you if you slow down and read carefully, you begin to see it everywhere for just to cite one example. In Egypt in chapter 5 of Exodus, Pharaoh is forcing the people to go and gather their own stubble or straw to make bricks, and he tells them they still have to meet their daily quota. And the word for the daily quota in in Exodus five is devar yom by yom, which is the stuff day by day. They have to they have to meet this daily quota by the making bricks. The stuff day that by day. Same, they, the stuff day by day. The the same phrase is used in Exodus sixteen when they are in the wilderness and God provides manna devar yom by yom. He provides the stuff for each day that they need. So what a contrast between the exploitative leadership of Pharaoh and the gracious provision of Yahweh. And and you see that all through the wilderness and all through the book of Exodus. It's just we're when we when we don't read the Old Testament, we are so missing out on the grace of God. And not only is it in Exodus, but it rolls right into uh, the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our, Give us our, our daily, daily bread. bread. <laughs> like is Yep. What was he thinking about when he was teaching these things? And and I know people yes. who think this way are really well-meaning. I'm not meaning to get on my soapbox here. But how much more wonderful is it to engage fully in the conversation than to just wait for your pet phrase to pop yeah. up and give an amen? Like I'm I'm not saying that there's not totally, wonderful totally. things there, but God has dumped riches on us. And it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to not know all the answers. It's mysterious and wonderful okay. and fun uh, to go get your buddies together and just talk about these things. Yeah. You know, I, some of your listeners will be old enough to remember a time when we used to turn on the television and there were things already playing on it, like before Netflix and before wow. Hulu and all of them. I vaguely <laughs> the, you remember know, we, this. Now we can, <laughs> we can just pick what we want to watch and start at the beginning. But <laughs> back when I was a kid, if you turned on the TV, it might be in the middle of a movie. And if you've ever had the experience of starting to watch a movie in the middle, you're like trying to figure out, okay, who are these people and what are they trying to do? And, and right. What what's going wrong? And reading the New Testament without the Old Testament is like turn on a movie in the middle and thinking that you've got enough to make sense of it. Yeah. Why wouldn't you start watching the movie from the beginning so that you can get the full picture? Now, if you watch a movie from the beginning, there's often a sense like, okay, I don't know where all this is going. I don't know who all these characters are and how they all connect to each other. But by the end, it all comes together. Right. And so I think people sometimes start with the Old Testament. They're like, oh, I don't understand this. I can't make all the connections. Well, that's because you got to stick with the story till the end. And yeah, I, I just like think it. Tr- treat it like a movie. Treat Watch it the like whole a movie. Thing. Treat the over Bible and over. like a movie. <laughs> you oh, heard man. It first. I think you did, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was another interesting part of your book. And I'm not sure what made you do it, but I'm so glad you did, is that in your first book, at the end of the chapters, you linked Bible Project videos. Oh, yeah. That was which actually was really helpful. brilliant. I was so yeah. into that. I was like, oh, she knows that I'm going to go look these up anyway. And mm-hmm. so here's the, the author just giving me a bit of a boost. And I don't think I've read another book that was as uh, easily accessible and, and hands-on friendly 
uh, for somebody who was going to mm-hmm. talk about these things and wanted to really think about it. Here's places mm-hmm. to, to dig deeper. So I don't know whether an apple mm-hmm. fell on your head and you were like, ah, oh, I've had an idea. <laughs> but whatever it was well, going on that day, know, that was a winner. It, it came out of my own teaching, right? So f- when the Bible Project first started, I loved their stuff and I started showing videos in class. So I would be teaching on Genesis 1 and I would show the heaven and earth video because I think it's really important. And then I would, you know, get to another story and show another Bible Project video. But but pretty soon I had a problem. There were so many videos that if I showed them all, I didn't have time to teach anymore. There would be no more of me talking. Right. And so... Then I've tra- I've transitioned. Now I rarely show a Bible project video in class, but that's the out of class assignments for my students. Mm-hmm. So when I teach Old Testament, they watch about forty Bible project videos outside of class mm-hmm. and take little quizzes on them to make sure they're catching the content. In any case, when I was writing, I'm as I'm explaining things in my book, I kept thinking, oh, I wish I could just stop right here and show them the heaven and earth video or show them the law video or whichever video because they're so well done and such solid material. And so then I went to IVP and said, hey, can we put QR codes in the book? Like, I really wanted them to be in the chapters, like right in the paragraph where I want you to watch the video. Here's the QR code. But IVP, this is probably a wise move on their part, said, that will date the book pretty fast. We don't know how long QR codes are going to be around. Mm. They could be here today and gone tomorrow. And they didn't want it to change pagination. So now if you flip towards the end of the book to the discussion questions uh, for use in small groups, there's a there's a couple of pages where all the QR codes are gathered. So for every chapter in the book, there's three, sometimes more, sometimes six or seven uh, videos, but usually three videos per chapter. And they're about five to seven minutes each. So if you have a small group meeting, you could watch the video together, discuss the questions, watch another video. Um, I'm trying to make it easy for people to gather together around the content and discuss it. And that came across in in your book. And I really liked it because so often uh, content creators can be very tribal and, you know, don't go Mm. listen to anyone, but tune back into us and (laughs) Uh, what I got from you was mm. just a, a much more kingdom-centered, you know, hey, this is mm. what we're doing. If you want to think about this more, then here you can go. And and I loved that about it because it felt very much mm. like you were interested in equipping the church to handle the topic. And so as a teacher, well, that I thought was, was leading by example, and, and I was blessed by it. I think the Bible Project has set the tone for that kind of collaboration because from day one, they've made their content available to the world for free. Mm. And people who donate are not getting exclusive rights to something. They're just paying it forward so that other people can benefit from the content. And I've loved their open-handed approach. And it's become a model for me. This is why I have a YouTube channel where I'm teaching my way through Exodus and giving away for free all the content or a lot of the content that will someday be in my Exodus commentary. I don't want people to have to wait five more years to learn this stuff. I want them to hear it now. So Look, and I'm glad you're I'm not learning, making us wait because I enjoy a good Torah Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a, a question here for you. And this was really when I read uh, the first book, this was a, a shocker for me. And uh, the whole idea of taking uh, God's name in vain. I had to read that like three times because I was pretty sure you just wanted me to cuss more. 
Like you were like, you know what, John, <laughs> just take off the filter and speak what's in your mind. Uh, because so much effort had been put in by my mother to make sure I behaved myself. Uh, and then when I really yeah. started thinking about it, I realized that you were handling this topic in a much deeper way and not taking anything mm -hmm. away, but really exposing the entire structure that goes into the mm -hmm. idea of, of bearing the name. And then Jesus's concept of taking up your cross. What, would you just talk a little mm -hmm. bit about how we may not be understanding the full richness of what it means to take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. Sure. So the commandment that you're talking about is in Exodus chapter 20, verse seven. Most of us have heard it as you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain or misuse the name of the Lord, your God. If you were able to read it in Hebrew, you would see that it says you shall not carry or bear the name of the Lord, your God in vain. And so I just asked myself, what does it mean to carry or bear a name? Most interpreters have come to, that doesn't make sense. We don't carry names, we say them. So this must be some kind of figure of speech that has to do with speaking the name of God. And that's where we get uh, the translation, misuse the name or take in vain. Uh, but I became convinced that Exodus itself gives us all the resources that we need to understand this kind of metaphor of us carrying the name of God. If we just flip a few chapters to chapter 28 and 29 of Exodus, where God is telling Moses what the high priestly garments are supposed to look like, we see that Aaron, the high priest, uh, he's, I, I know nobody was hanging out in Exodus 28, 29 for their devotions this morning. This isn't anybody's favorite passage of the Bible. It doesn't wear relevance on its sleeve. But these detailed instructions for constructing or making the high priestly garments include uh, this special pouch that he wears on his chest that has 12 gemstones on it. And each one is engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the text tells us, and so he shall bear the names of the sons of Israel before me and I will bless them. And so he has he has gemstones on his shoulders with six names on each, and then the 12 stones on his chest, and he's literally carrying their names. Mm. It The names qualify him to be their representative, so that as Aaron goes into the temple uh, or the tabernacle, as he as he goes moves in and out of sacred space, he's representing them. All 12 tribes have a share in his ministry. They're all included in the benefits of what he's accomplishing in the tabernacle. And I, and I think that makes so clear what it means to bear God's name, because it's the same phrase being used. He is carrying the names, just like we're supposed to not carry the name of God in vain. And if we think further about what he's wearing, Aaron has on his forehead a gold medallion that says, holy belonging to Yahweh. So he literally carries God's name. Yahweh on his forehead. And if we if we keep all that in mind, we can see that as he, that Aaron is an authorized representative of God. He represents Yahweh to the people and he represents the people to Yahweh. He's an intermediary between them. And so when Yahweh says to the people, "You shall not bear my name in vain." We should be asking ourselves, are the people also wearing God's name just like Aaron is? And we don't have very far to look to see evidence that that's how the Torah thinks of, 
of them. They, they are the people who bear God's name. In Numbers chapter 6, we find out the priestly blessing. So when Aaron is doing his job, his duties in the tabernacle, he is supposed to pronounce a blessing over the nation of Israel. And that blessing is, may Yahweh bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. You know, we've heard this blessing. We don't usually read verse 27. Number 627 says, and so you shall put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Wow. So there's a sense in which by blessing the people, the priest is putting the name of Yahweh on them. It's like an, a verbal tattoo or a verbal brand. And so the command then is a command for them as a kingdom of priests not to misrepresent Yahweh. Just as Aaron is an intermediary between Yahweh and the people, so the nation as a whole is an intermediary between Yahweh and the world. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, Peter writes to believers, a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus, and he says, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's special possession. So he uses the same titles that were given at Sinai. He implies that we by faith in Jesus, are grafted into this same covenant. Therefore, we represent God by bearing his name as well. So we need to think about how are we representing him. So back to your original point, John, about swearing. Most of us have thought that this command is telling us not to use swear words or use God's name as a swear word. I'm not advocating that we begin doing that. I was just giving you a hard time. But I'm saying it's much broader than that. Yeah, I, I was picking <laughs> right? up what you were Some people have asked down. me. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so, some people have asked me that. Like, oh, so is it no, no big deal if we swear? Like, no, I would see it as like a Venn diagram. Like if you think of intersecting circles, to, to swear, to use God's name as a swear word is one way of representing him in a way that's dishonoring. So it's failing to represent him well, but it's way bigger than what comes out of our mouth. It's all, it's right. how we handle our money, what sort of entertainment we're seeking out, how we treat our employees, how we drive, it, you know, it's everything. So I just think we shouldn't limit it to swearing. I think at times the church can fall into the trap of thinking, I don't sin like this, therefore I'm okay. Like mm -hmm. my sins are okay. Mm -hmm. Other people's are a problem. And we have this list of, mm -hmm. you know, so long as you look good on the outside, uh, you know, you're fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and the words of Jesus, like, pop back in my head, you know, you look good on the outside, you whitewash tombs, you're filled with dead men's bones. That idea of it isn't just about an exterior, okay, well, you sound like a nice person. You sound like you're being a godly person. You have to actually be one. Mm -hmm. You have to take up his name and follow after him. Uh, Jonah, you look like you've got thoughts over there. Yes. Well, one just additional comment. I was just talking with someone today. When we get caught up with uh, perhaps uh, a detail or something that the scriptures don't say, like, oh, don't swear, don't swear. Um, it's interesting, similar to what you just said, John, kind of focusing on, oh, as long as I check this box, then I'm on the external, that's fine. But even for speech, we still kind of miss, miss it sometimes. Like, oh, as long as I don't say this group of words, swear words, but uh, mm -hmm. I slander my neighbor behind their yeah, back and I yeah. gossip. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and some of these, uh, like Ephesians 4, I think it says, don't let filthy talk come out of your mouth. Whatever. Uh, uh, it seems like most of these commands about 
godly speech about are not slandering, tearing someone down. Yeah, and I think they um, go back to mm-hmm. your question earlier about it's the image of God isn't mm-hmm. about looking a certain way or sounding a certain way, but that God has given us yeah. a calling mm-hmm. to, to be something. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think like, man, you nailed it when, when you put that question at the very beginning there, Jonah. I mm-hmm. think you were, you were spot on. And uh, so that was, that was just, but that was an additional comment. My one question, well, it's related, Dr. Imes, to what I would say is the most profound line of being, being God's image Solved the little puzzle for me. Uh, you said earlier uh, in the book, you said Genesis 1 is a hybrid genre, the platypus of biblical literature. Do you recall writing that line? I missed the line. You, oh, no. You Let me say it again. So you, so you said, uh, mm-hmm. you, you said uh, Genesis 1, the genre of Genesis 1 is a hybrid genre, the platypus of biblical literature. <laughs> yes. I, I recall uh, writing that line. <laughs> I think I laughed out loud. That was good. Uh, I, and I love that. And it, it was both funny in the, sa- in the same line. It was both funny and it solved, and it solved a puzzle, a puzzle for me. Uh, uh, related to Genesis 1, so... That's getting to my uh, to my real question of uh, it's kind of a general question. I want you to just maybe speak some. Uh, the the, bit, the question is I'd love to just hear asking for general wisdom or guidance that you've glean, uh, gleaned over the years, or just kind of learned over the years about teaching a text where there's some baggage with that text, whether it, whether mm. it's controversy mm-hmm. Genesis one or. Uh, there, there's a tradition. There's a traditional view, and for you to say this, the average person in the view in the in the pew, those are big roadblocks often for people uh, mm-hmm. uh, hearing that because they're like, uh, oh, this it's either con- controversy adds the roadblock or just the oh, that's what I have learned from Sunday school. Um, and yeah, I, one I already kind of maybe hinted at one uh, uh, one one uh, kind of tool of wisdom for us pastors that when, when this, when this comes up, this, uh, whether it's controversy or we're about to preach something that's, that's not traditional, but we see this in the text. And one bit of wisdom is, is humor. Uh, that line, I, li- mm-hmm. yeah, I, re- I really like that line, but so could you just over the years, uh, just w- w- what you've learned, just the w- wisdom you learned about, uh, f- for us teachers, when we come to these types of, uh, texts and are to teach them, uh, what wisdom can you give us? Uh, mm-hmm. Throw some humor in there. Yeah. Uh, something I, I guess something yeah, else I also I see is you 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 like address she told both a story kind of a thing. Yeah, story, and then you uh, you you address both views. Oh, we all agree on this. Give us the secret formula. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. You all. Agree, yeah. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I'll do my best to give my secret formula. I think humor it, humor is helpful. Humor can also be a cover for lack of an argument. Uh-huh. So I never want humor to substitute for make, making a case for something, but it can be disarming. And so I think it needs to be used judiciously. Mm-hmm. I think what's been most helpful to me is to remember where I came from mm-hmm. and to, rem- to be able to remember the time when I thought that too. And how, how did I move from point A to point B and to show respect for those who still hold view A. 
and not assume that they're all a bunch of Luddites because they don't know what I know. Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I think remembering where I've come from in my own thought process and showing honor to those who have a different view, that's always my goal. I don't know if I always achieve it, but my goal is to treat other people with dignity, even when their views are different than my own. And I work hard to imagine why somebody might hold a view that's not my view and what might motivate them to hold that view. Sometimes someone holds a view because of ignorance. They haven't learned, you know, what they need to know to to form a different view. But sometimes someone's view is very well studied, but it's rooted in a different set of hermeneutical principles Mm -hmm. or a different set of assumptions about the way the world works or a different set of assumptions about what scripture is and how it's functioning. So if I'm going to try to toy with somebody's, mess with somebody's whole paradigm in how they understand scripture, I usually try to start back a few steps earlier to build the kind of framework they need so that they can receive what I have to say. If I don't address the underlying assumptions, they're not going to be persuaded by my different conclusion. But if I show them, okay, this is how I look at scripture, and this is how I how I get to this view, then it builds a kind of empathy. Even if they don't agree with me, they can see how I got there. I think that's so really, those are a, that. those are a few mm-hmm. things wise for today because in the age of the internet and the fast comment, we can get into the habit of striking a fast blow for justice and mm-hmm. say you're and almost belittling mm-hmm. to the extent. But yeah. discipleship is really yeah. a much different game than winning an argument. Yes, it's, it's loving yes. someone enough to bring them. Yes, and to have a conversation, not just to preach a sermon at somebody, but to mm-hmm. talk with someone. Yes. Well, I, I try to always assume the best of them. Like, it, it doesn't work to throw a passage at somebody. And on a very regular basis, I see people throwing around 1 Timothy 2.12 as if that should just solve, you know, that should just end the whole conversation about what women can and can't do in the church. And it's like, you think I haven't read 1 Timothy 2.12? <laughs> Dude, I have to live with that every day. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I've thought it through. So I think rather than throwing passages at each other or arguments to try to understand what's motivating someone and to try to make the case for a different way of seeing things. Yeah, you know, I've struggled with depression uh, most of my life. Uh-huh. And I can't tell you how many times people weaponized Bible verses uh-huh. and just like mm. beat you over the head with them. As though, like, why don't you make a joyful noise, John? I'm like, well, I got no joyful noises to make. <laughs> As though, like, you just wave a magic wand and, and that these aren't real questions. And I, I, I really appreciate that wisdom there. But Rose is chomping at the bit to get her question hey, in here. She's have, very polite, and she's not yeah. going to talk over us, but she's got stuff to say. Yeah, I'm going to get my elbows out here, guys. Actually, on that thought that you guys brought up, um, reminds me of a quote by um, Oswald Chambers. And I might be taken out of context, but it's helped me a lot over the, I'm getting the thumbs up. We like him, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says to never make a principle out of your experience, but to let God be as original with other people as he's been with you. And oh. I just remember that oh, sometimes. Wow. Yeah, I just remember that sometimes when I think, not like, well, they're not as far along as I am. It's that the Lord is the one who is using each of us. And we don't really get to measure where people are in their walk with him at all. And I, mm. I do have to 
remind myself of that, especially with my children. I expect them to pick up where I am mm. and keep moving, but they, they haven't been brought mm. in the same paths and, and other humans haven't right. either. So, um, right. But I did have a question for you about your two books, and I did have to bring up the names of both of them because I haven't read Being God's Image. But I'm curious why mm -hmm. you started with Bearing God's Name and then went to Being God's Image. I think you said you were writing your dissertation maybe when you did Bearing God's Name. Yes. But was there something yeah. in the content of that that drew you to the theme of then being God's image? Because it feels like chronologically yeah. they, they would have yeah. happened differently. They're, <laughs> they're out of order. Yep. That's okay. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. So, so Bearing God's Name was based on my dissertation work. It was the book I had to write when I finished that because I wanted the world to know that as Christians, we represent God to the nations. We have this vocation. I wanted to help Christians to rediscover that. It was so fun to write. I loved the process. I loved the the level that we landed at in terms of like reader engagement. And I thought, oh, I want to do more of this. But I didn't have another idea immediately. But about a week after the book released, I was lying in bed one night and I thought, okay, so this book would be great for an Old Testament class but it's not really the whole story of biblical theology because it starts at Sinai and traces it, traces that theme of covenant through the whole Bible. But what about Genesis? There's more, mm -hmm. like, there's a whole book that comes before this. There's, <laughs> there has to be more to say. And I, and so in tandem with that thought was a question that people were already starting to ask me as they heard me talk about what it meant to bear God's name and how it's representative they would often say, oh, isn't that kind of like being made in the image of God? And doesn't that mean we, rep like people talk about it's a representative role, like humans represent God. So isn't it kind of the same thing? Mm -hmm. And I, I touch on it briefly in bearing God's name in order to distinguish those two concepts. They're similar, but they're not the same because every human being is the image of God, mm -hmm. but only the covenant people bear God's name. In other words, if you're not a Christian, it's not possible for you to take God's name in vain. Because hmm. you're not you don't bear God's name. You can't misrepresent God if you don't represent him to begin with. But no matter so what, you're in my, his image. You're created in his image. Yes. Hmm. Yes. So we're all created with the potential of being part of the covenant people. We're all given a human role to play, but there's a difference in scope in terms of who who's being talked about with each of those themes. So I wanted to show how the two themes interact and then how when you get to the New Testament, both threads come together in Jesus. Jesus is the ideal human. He's the image of God who, who fulfills his human vocation with excellence and perfection. And he also bears God's name. And so he shows us how to be human, how to represent God to the nations and kind of ties both together. Well, so you're right that they that I wrote them in the wrong order. That's kind right. of like C.S. Lewis <laughs> wrote his Chronicles of Narnia in the wrong order. <laughs> so is that your is that your next book to do one on New Testament Jesus, or is that just like no both way too both much of the books. <laughs> so both of the books go to Jesus. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. bearing God's mm -hmm. name talks about Jesus as the name bearer. Being God's image talks about Jesus. Um, as the image of God. So I've already traced those threads, but I do have a third thread that I'd like to trace and a potential title uh, 
if I can She's get around to writing it. And that yeah, would be... Yeah, we're yeah, digging here. I'll awesome. tell you. <laughs> yes, I'll yes. tell you. Thank you. Was, was my idea my is... <laughs> <laughs> Becoming yeah. God's family, why oh. the church still matters. Oh, I love wow. that. So, yes. Well, I'm glad I'm, you're writing one like because the, it feels incomplete on my shelf with only two. Uh-huh. I have to have a oh, third. Oh, I know. You need a third. I have to have the It third. has to be a trilogy. Right. right. It obviously. has to be blue, of course. It has to be blue to sort of round out the Because I have an wheel. orange one and a green oh. one, and now I need a blue one. Yep. You do. Mm-hmm. So, so I do not have a whole rainbow planned, just a trilogy, but I am thinking that we need to make the case for why, why it's incomplete for me to just try to follow Jesus on my own as yes. a solo yeah. project, but why we actually need community and what matter, what, why does it matter that we gather together when, you know, we live in an age where the church has come under fire for, for good reason, um, in some cases where there's been abuse, uh, misplaced priorities, all kinds of improper p- power dynamics. So why should people not walk away from the church if it's had so many problems? Mm. Why do we need to stick it out? Uh, that's that's what I'm thinking about next. Well, I think that's a really needed topic. Uh, I want to bring us to uh, a conclusion here. Uh, and because it's the podcast and we have the microphones, we get to pick what we talk about. And I have the last question. <laughs> And so there was a, a part of your new book <clears throat> where you're talking about Jesus healing a man born blind. And I've always thought it was kind of a standalone episode. And uh, you did a really interesting thing in drawing our attention back to the book of Isaiah. And could you just talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what is happening in the text there and why Jesus sure. does what he does? Mm, I'd love to. This was a happy accident of my seminary education. In one semester, I was taking a class on John, exegesis of John class, and exegesis of Isaiah at the same time. So I I was doing original language translation, and I had to translate John 9. It was just after having translated Isaiah 6. And I began to see all these connections that you can't really see as well in English. And I started checking commentaries and nobody was talking about this. And so if I had done a PhD in New Testament, which was one of the options, I would have written my dissertation on John 9. So I was excited to squeeze it into this book and share a little bit of what I saw there. Um, As people are probably aware, the story of Jesus healing the man born blind is one in which... Uh, Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on the man's eyes and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and so he's healed. There's so much going on in this passage, but what becomes clear to me is that this story is about more than fixing this man's problem, because the problem is fixed in verse 7, but the story continues the entire chapter up to verse 41 is wrestling with what Jesus has done. So to to the first thing to say is this is not about fixing a person. It's about revealing who Jesus really is. The the book is is a revelation of Jesus identity. But I was so curious about why Jesus used this method to heal the man. Why not just snap his fingers or touch his eyes? Like why can't he just say something? Why does he make mud and smear it on the man's eyes? And this is where translating from Greek and Hebrew really helped me because in Greek, he besmeared the man's eyes. 
And the word besmeared is a rare word. It's only twice, I think, in the New Testament. And it's the verbal form of the name Christ. So as you're aware, the 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 title Christ or Christos means Messiah. And a Messiah is one who's been besmeared. If you picture in the Lion King when when Simba is anointed to be king when he's little he's born and the, and then Rafiki comes and anoint him he smears this oil substance on his forehead with his thumb that's an an, an anointing is a besmearing and this this is what Jesus does to the man he besmears his eyes and i had just read in Isaiah 6 where god is telling Isaiah what his mission will be to the people of Israel and he tells them that he's going to besmear their eyes. And so it just jumped off the page at me. This is Isaiah 6, verse 10. Make the heart of this people calloused or heavy. Make their ear or make the heart of this people fat, I think is how it is in, in Hebrew. Make their ears heavy and besmear their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So this is a message of judgment. God is confirming them in their in their lack of responsiveness to him because he has tried and tried and tried again over and over again over the centuries to bring them back to covenant faithfulness and they've refused. So it's time for judgment. And in John 9, by the end of the chapter, the ones who can't see are the Pharisees and, and the Jewish leaders who who are insisting they can see, but they're completely not getting who Jesus is and what he's up to. Meanwhile, the man who was born blind has been besmeared, and he can see now. And he was told to wash in the pool of Siloam, which is a pool that was historically associated with Isaiah. Isaiah was reportedly buried near the pool of Siloam, and this the, the word means sent, and Isaiah is the one who says, here I am, send me. So there's all kinds of connections with Isaiah. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world in this chapter. And light is a huge theme in Isaiah. So if we flip back to Isaiah, not only was he as a prophet told to besmear their eyes so that they couldn't see as a form of judgment, he also announces in chapter 35, turn there a moment, uh, Starting in verse 4 of chapter 35, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So Isaiah speaks of a future day when God himself will come to his people to save them and the blind will see. So for Jesus to choose this particular method of healing was like a dramatic reenactment of Isaiah's mission that simultaneously announced that Isaiah's prophecies had come true, that God had come and he was right now saving people. It's just, it's so mind-blowing to me how many echoes there are of Isaiah here and how much it tells us about Jesus and his mission, but you don't see it unless you slow down and read it really carefully. I loved it. I loved it. When I was reading through there, I can't tell you how many times I've read that text and thought, this is weird, mm -hmm. but I don't know why I think it's weird. And it, it felt random, and I feel so much better 
having <clears throat> having had somebody point me to to Isaiah because mm-hmm. now it mm-hmm. feels like a complete story and and I can't thank yeah, you yeah. Uh, enough for following the weird rabbit trail with us but I I got you on the phone so I'm going to ask you know yeah. that's kind of a thing so sweet sweet so I appreciate you'll find you. that lots of you'll find that lots of commentaries will pick that pick up the Isaiah echoes when you get down to the end of the chapter when Jesus announces for judgment I've come into the world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind they're like ah oh, this is an echo of Isaiah but they but when it comes time to talk about why Jesus heals the man in this way nobody's talking about Isaiah mm. <laughs> at least they weren't 10 years ago when I did this project well we're going to talk about it and uh, and I'm sure other people <laughs> are out there thinking the same thing mm-hmm. Take some time, guys, and dig into that text. Go take a look at what Jesus is doing and read it through the lens of Isaiah. Uh, these are great books. I can't recommend them enough to you. Uh, Dr. Imes, where would you like the folks to buy your book from? Uh, wherever you buy books. So it's on Amazon. If you have a local bookseller that you like to support, um, you can order directly from wherever you like to buy books. Um, if you need ideas, Hearts and Minds Bookstore in, uh, I think it's in Pittsburgh, is a fantastic place to buy books. Um, you can order online or you can order directly from IVP. So it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, there's there's Kindle version, paperback, audiobook that I narrated, and it's on Logos. And it's going to eventually come out in Korean. Ooh. If you'd rather cool. read it in Korean. Mm-hmm. I would not, but I'm sure somebody out there yeah, would yeah. like that. Uh, like <laughs> yeah. maybe whole countries of people. This whole yes. table looks confused right now. I don't think that's going to be happening. <laughs> no, I love it. And so we're so excited that you came on to chat with us. And uh, and you can find you. a lot of your content on YouTube or follow on your social media accounts. Uh, but we just want to go ahead and say thank you to our listeners here. And we cannot encourage you enough uh, to pick up these books and to think about these things as you continue your pursuit of Jesus. So we're going to go ahead and sign off. And Dr. Hines, if you just hold on for a second, we'll wish our friends goodbye. God bless. And we'll talk to you soon.